This is Our American Stories, and marriage is a subject we care about. And as you know, if you want hard political talk, well, this isn't the show for you. But if you want to talk about stories and about big, broad range of issues that matter to you, your health, the welfare of your kids, the state of our society, but not right versus left like you're used to, well, then park park alongside us for a while and take a listen. And marriage is the central pillar of the American dream. We believe this on this show, and it's hard to get by without it. It's hard in your own personal life, but my goodness, for a country to manage without marriage, I don't know how you do it. Men and women who get and stay married are much less likely to be poor. We've covered this territory before, but we're going to repeat it over and over again. And they enjoy substantially more family income and assets over the course of their lives than their peers who are divorced and or never married. Today we're talking with Brad Wilcox, professor of sociology at the University of Virginia and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a friend of this show's. Brad and his team have worked together to answer the question, does social welfare policy affect family formation? And Brad, thanks for joining us. I think it's great to be here today. You know, Brad, before we dig in, I want to share with you a story we've been running down now for about I think we've done four hours with this particular 4C court judge named Bobby Francis. And what we're discovering is that so many of the convicts who find their way into the prison system in Texas are, well, like one young lady named Navina uh, who was who was rounded up in a drug uh, raid. Her boyfriend was a big-time dealer. She was an addict. And the next thing you know, she's looking at a 20-year sentence. She goes into Judge Francis's court, and, well, it turns out, well, she never had a dad. She never had structure. Her mom sold her and did drugs with her. And it was a tragedy. And when we asked Judge Francis, and we always do each week, is this the exception, the norm? You've done how many people now? And he told us it was over 2,000 he's counseled. He said 95% don't have a father, Brad. Talk about that. Well, you know, that that story uh, fits well, I think, with the evidence. And that is, is that what we see is that particularly boys, um, and I really don't know as well the evidence on, on girls, but boys who've grown up without a father in the home are more than twice as likely to end up in prison or in jail uh, by the time they turn 30, even after kind of what we call controlling for in the research, things like uh, family income, parental education, race, and ethnicity. So there's something particularly powerful here about not having your own dad in the home that makes our boys uh, more likely to end up uh, in trouble with the law um, and in prison. And I I think, you know, what we're talking about here is that boys who don't have dads, you know, don't have a role model for um, someone who's kind of able to handle his his emotions, uh, his frustrations, his anger in a responsible way. Um, They don't see a guy working kind of nine to five modeling for them, you know, work ethic. Yep. Which you know, which would guide them through school and and then work later on. Um, they don't have a you know someone who's invested in them, steering clear of bad peer networks. A lot of you know a lot of problems crop up when teenagers start hanging out with the wrong crowd. And so not having a dad kind of steering them clear of that crowd, you know, is also I think a big factor on this. But the bottom line is you know as you know, is that having a married father in the picture um, makes a big difference in helping kids. Um, you know, steer clear of trouble in, in adolescence and young adulthood. 
No doubt. And by the way, Brad, what we also love doing, we did an hour on Arnold Palmer. We did one on Brett Favre recently. And we always dig in to the central influence in these guys' lives. And my goodness, you couldn't get Arnold Palmer off his father. So not only do we know the consequences of not having one, but my goodness, these guys like Palmer, Favre said, I couldn't have done what I did without my dad. It was unimaginable to me. So let's dig into the research. Let's take it back a step before we get into the policy. Why is family formation itself so important, Brad? We've talked about the dads, but this idea of the family and the formation, talk about that if you could. Well, you know, I think there is a few out there today that marriage is just a piece of paper. And when I was interviewing younger adults in in Harlem and the Bronx a few years ago, you know, a lot of people sort of just had this view. It doesn't make a big difference whether you're married or not. You know, but the fact of the matter is, is that uh, kids who are born to married parents, you know, are much, much more likely to see their parents stick together um, over the course of their, you know, lives as as kids. Um, And that stability then redounds to the benefit uh, of those kids in in so many ways. Um, If you, you know, if you've had kids or cared for kids, you know, they thrive on stable routines with stable caregivers. And a married family is much more likely to deliver that stability um, than is, you know, than is, or than are the alternatives um, in terms of being born to a collaborating couple or to a single mom. So um, that's why the sort of family formation piece is so important. You know, sort of the context that kids are born into has a big implication um, with how much stability they're going to see later on in their family. And I think, in some way, Brad, and again, this is not for any of you listening who. Are, are single moms or who know single moms or are raised by single moms. This is no way a slam of your predicament. Uh, no, it's so far, so far bigger than that and so far greater an issue than that. Uh, and it's just why do people think what they think about marriage? And if they knew more about the consequences of their decision-making, that maybe their decision-making might be different. Uh, is that in part why you're doing what you're doing, Brad? Yeah, what we've seen actually, uh, and there's some actually good news in the family front we have to bear in mind, is that we've seen divorce come down um, in the country as a whole since the 1990s, and that's particularly true for college-educated Americans. And I think what's happened in part is that they've gotten the message. Um, they've seen the studies or heard the research talked about in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or wherever, you know, that kids who... Um, whose parents get divorced are more likely to flounder. Uh, they're more likely to be depressed, you know, drop out of high school and not, right. a, not graduate from college. And they're acting accordingly, you know. And so um, the point here is that kind of other Americans who are, who are less well-educated, perhaps less plugged into these kinds of um, elite media outlets, I don't think really understand how much the stability of their own family lives is going to affect their kids. And so we have to, I think, get that message out there to the broader society, um, to working class and poor, uh, you know, couples and kids, you know, that family stability matters and that marriage is typically um, one of the best ways to, uh, to stabilize families and help kids. Well, hold that thought, Brad. And when we come back, we're talking to Brad Wilcox. We're talking about family. We're talking about fatherhood, motherhood. But most importantly, we're talking about how public policy affects all of it. When we come back, we'll, do, we'll drill down into the public policy implications of marriage.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Brad Wilcox, professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, my alma mater, and Alex's too, and he's a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And where we left off, Brad, was a simple question, and that is, and it's a complex answer, but what are the implications and what has been the consequence of welfare policy, and particularly, Brad, in the area of penalizing marriage? Uh, Talk about that and what your research found. Well, you know, Lee, I think a lot of um, conservatives tend to think that the dramatic increase in single parenthood since the 60s is primarily the fault of the welfare system. And I think, by contrast, a lot of liberals uh, think it's just about economic changes. Um, And, of course, uh, as with many things in life, the truth actually is somewhere in between uh, those two um, positions. Uh, And our research, I think, speaks to that. What we're finding is that today about four in ten families are receiving some kind of means-tested assistance from the federal government. That could be Medicaid, you know, their medical care. It could be um, food stamps. It could be cash welfare. Um, or something else. Um, and it's just amazing to think about the fact that, again, about four in ten families in America are in some kind of um, assistance from the government. And so the question for us in this new research that we've done is, you know, does the sort of existence of that um, of that aid, uh, which tends to penalize marriage, I mean, it's often harder to access these benefits if, you know, if you get married and report your joint income, does that discourage marriage? Um, and we find some of it that does discourage marriage, particularly for not the poorest couples, because their income is so low that, you know, it doesn't really affect their eligibility for these programs. So for kind of the, the lower middle class couples, um, it's those couples whose income is between, say, 24000 and $79,000 who are more likely to face marriage penalties and, um, and more likely not to get married um, for fear of losing something like, you know, free medical care or food stamps. And what happens, Brad, is sometimes one parent qualifies for the welfare benefits based on his or her own personal income, but would not be eligible if his or her partner's earnings were counted as part of that household income. And so in that respect, you're saying that that could be the disincentive, and that sounds like the, what we would call the, the, the lower working class or the, the working poor. And, that's a, and, and, and you said right up to 75000 Brad. That's, that's quite startling. Yeah, so what typically you have here in this kind of situation is you have a, a, a you know a woman, a mother of one or two kids, who is living with um, the father of one or two of her children, um, and she's precisely the kind of person who, um, you know, when she and her boyfriend kind of run the numbers in a sense, you know, have this you know have this uh, conclusion that you know getting married um, would make them ineligible for particularly health care. Um, or food stamps. And, and that conclusion leads them to be uh, either hesitant about getting married, um, they might put it off, or they might not get married at all. So we've written about one woman, Katie, who's a 26-year-old collaborating mom in, in Ohio. And she said, quote, when you get married, I'm pretty sure that you lose your insurance, unquote, talking about Medicaid. And so she's she's not sure about getting married. Um, and she's living with you know her, her boyfriend, uh, who is the father of one of her two kids. Um, and um, you know, she's she's concerned again that if she were to marry him, they would you know lose health care for uh, for herself and her and her two kids. So this is the kind of issue that we're concerned about. Now, to be clear, um, 
when you interview a wide range of working class Americans, only a minority of them will say that this kind of calculus enters into their thinking. You know, for a lot of them, it's really much more about, um, frankly, often his work, uh, that is the boyfriend's work, and the stability of his work, and his kind of responsibility ethic. Yep. Th- those those things are much more important than, than his welfare. And consumers have to remember that. It's much more about, you know, is the guy stably employed and is he responsible? If he is those two things, they're much more likely to move to marriage. But for some group here of um, particularly working-class couples in our estimation, um, the existence of, of programs that only kind of help you if your income falls below a threshold makes them more reluctant to go right um, or, or to, to, to move towards marriage. And what are your thoughts about, uh, you know, we had interviewed Charles Murray for an hour on his on his great book, Coming Apart, and we've got this large swath of society now, and his book was in large measure white working poor and white working class folks, and the institution of marriage breaking down there too. Uh, are these same things at work across race completely in this country, Brad? Yeah, I mean, there's... There are differences in what we call the levels. Uh, that is, is that you know, single parenthood and family instability is highest among African Americans, um, and somewhat you know more common among uh, Hispanics, a little bit less common among whites, and you know it's it's really uh, relatively rare among Asian Americans. You know, so there there are differences across these racial and ethnic lines. Um, but I think kind of what's emerging now is the bigger divide is really by class, and what you see is a college. College-educated Americans are doing pretty well on the marriage front, um, and people who don't have that college degree um, have a more working-class, you know, um, orientation, background, lifestyle, are experiencing a lot more um, family uh, problems, um, you know, more cohabitation, more instability, more single parenthood, uh, as well. Of course, you know, the same thing is true, even more so among the poor. Yeah, and what about the uh, economic side, Brad? I know we're talking here about the welfare policy side, but I think we can't not mention uh, what the economy is doing and how it's changed and how it's changed for a lot of guys who would normally have worked in a factory for 40 years, gotten benefits, regular pay. And now the way this economy works, what I like to call the Uber economy, great for some people, not so great for others. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, so I think for guys who don't have, um, you know, formal, I mean, higher education uh, in their background who have relied traditionally more upon their, you know, their physical strength or skills um, in the workforce. These are the men who are struggling more in today's economy um, because, you know, manufacturing opportunities are much less prevalent and also because sort of the big companies that provide stable jobs um, to less educated men are much less likely to have a big footprint in today's economy. Um, and we've seen a lot of job growth more in the service industry and the health sectors, um, which have tended to serve, especially for less educated folks, tended to favor women. Um, and so what you're seeing basically is that men have access to fewer um, high-paying jobs um, and less stable jobs if they don't have that college degree. Um, and at the same time, the women in their lives are actually getting better job opportunities, relatively speaking, than was the case you know, 40 years ago. So you have this really two-sex two story that is making men less economically attractive um, yeah. to women in their communities, and that's, that's never a good dynamic. And I think in the end, Brad, less relevant. And imagine not feeling relevant, not having meaning, getting up every day and thinking that you're making a difference and can make a deep contribution in someone's life. And that's when I walked away from Charles Murray's book with. 
oh, my goodness, I think a lot of these guys just don't feel relevant and they don't think they can have the impact. And what are the, what are the policies, the public policies, that can address both the punish, punishment side of this equation, Brad, where we were talking about earlier, and also the side where, boy, if the economy doesn't make up the difference, what do we do for these men? Well, on the economic and the policy side, I think there are two things that we could do to strengthen the position of these men. One is to actually look you know, earlier in the pipeline, if you will, and to do a much better job on vocational education and apprenticeship training. Um, there are countries like Germany and Japan, for instance, that do a much better job of educating young adults who are not in that college track yep. um, and connecting them to jobs that pay good wages and give them good opportunities in advanced manufacturing um, or in, as electricians or, or plumbers or um, doing IT work, you know, and those jobs are out there. And we need to um, think, I think, hard about how our our schools um, could do a better job of serving the kinds of kids and teens, particularly boys, who are not on that college track. Yep. And that's going to have implications for their future earnings, their sense of identity, and their marriageability. Um, I also think we could do more to subsidize uh, lower-income work um, in ways that make it more um, – economically remunerative. That's a second policy idea. But I think it's also the case on the cultural front that we need to sort of double down this idea that, you know, working, seeking work really matters. It's it's really important. It should be honored. Even if you're making a minimum wage, you know, salary, that's still something, you know. Um, and still, it's still true today that people who are working full-time, regardless kind of, of the sort of character of their job, they're much less likely to be poor. So that's, that's worth, I think, bearing in mind. And the final point here is this. We have to also, I think, recognize, you know, given the instability that a lot of these guys face in their jobs and job opportunities, that men as fathers contribute more than just money to their kids. And, you know, I was just walking by a, a softball uh, tournament on Saturday this past weekend in Charlottesville and saw all these girls being coached by almost overwhelmingly a male group of guys. I'm assuming that they were their dads. Yep. So that's just one way that you can see that you know, men's contributions to their kids need not be just financial. You can sort of recognize and acknowledge that you know, the average dad, um, particularly in the sports arena, you know, can play a pretty exceptional role in the life of his, of his son or daughter in this case. And that story sums it up, Brad. And you're listening to Brad Wilcox from the University of Virginia, my alma mater and Alex's, and the American Enterprise Institute, who's doing the best writing in this country on marriage. This is Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, where we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, business. One of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications and a modern renaissance man. Take it away, Carl. The law of unintended consequences applies as much to good deeds as it does to other parts of life. That's something anyone involved in charity needs to keep firmly in mind, because it's actually quite easy to harm someone while trying to help them. 
When you donate cash to someone with a substance abuse problem, you're often sending them off on a debilitating bender. If you repeatedly hand out free food to people in hungry countries, you crush the ability of local farmers to make a living and actually reduce food production. We all know how government welfare entitlements can destroy initiative and independence and self-respect. One group you may not have realized is at risk in this way is veterans. The increased respect and appreciation given to military service these days is one of the most heartening improvements in public opinion in my lifetime. After some shameful failures in the 1960s and 70s, support for those in uniform and for veterans is now broad and deep. But that increased respect sometimes now causes many people to want to throw money at veterans in ways that are not in their long-term interests. Some of our best young men and women today are being destroyed by the sentimental idea that everyone who puts on a uniform deserves a lifelong stream of public income. Do you realize that a shocking 45% of all young veterans now leaving the service are applying for lifelong disability payments? Keep in mind that only about 10% of these veterans even served in combat, yet they are claiming injuries at four to eight times the rate of World War II veterans. Record numbers are saying they have PTSD or hearing loss or sleep disorders or other maladies that deserve monthly compensation. Why this epidemic? Because we have built a huge system mixing private charity and government welfare payments that encourages them to think of themselves as broken and entitled. Here's a description of how the current system pulls service members into thinking of themselves as sick as they leave the military, a time when they should be revving up for great success in civilian life. The speaker is Jake Wood, a highly decorated Marine who fought in both Iraq and Afghanistan. The system's broken. When I was transitioning out of the Marine Corps, you had to go through this thing called the Transition Assistance Program. And it was about 45 Marines from far-flung units uh, within our division, uh, you know, guys that were in the Supply Corps, logisticians, cooks, and infantry guys like myself. But at one point, a, a representative from one of these large organizations, uh, nonprofit organizations, gets up and he says, you know, points at the first gentleman, he says, what'd you do in the Marine Corps? The guy says, I was a supply officer. He goes... Okay, you got a bad back, I can get you 20% for that. Did you ever go out on a convoy in Iraq? Yes? Fantastic, I can get you an extra 20% for PTSD. You, young woman, what'd you do? Oh, I was, a, I was an admin clerk. You got carpal tunnel syndrome, that's an easy 10. You ever fire at the, a rifle at the rifle range? Great, you got tinnitus in your ear, that's an extra 10%. You can get 20% for the rest of your life. And this went on and on and on until he had gotten enough of a cross-section of, of different jobs within the military and explained the types of examples that they could go in and get rubber stamped out of the system. This creates two obvious problems. The first is economic. That's unsustainable. The other, the other part of this is cultural. Today's explosion in disability payments to vets is producing soaring costs. Just the service members who have gone on disability in the last 10 years alone will cost taxpayers $500 billion. But the even more troubling aspect of this is that cultural damage that Jake Wood referred to. We are encouraging young Americans to think of themselves as irretrievably broken. We are seducing a whole generation of highly talented, patriotic, experienced young men and women to lay down on a couch and live off monthly checks instead of going out into the workforce and creating a career and proudly independent life for themselves. You know, work isn't just a paycheck. 
It gets us out into the world. It connects us to other people. It's a big part of our identity and self-respect. So it's just a tragedy that our rhetoric, our charity, our whole system of veterans' entitlement is now pulling Americans away from work and independence and into a life of passive dependence on others, which often leads to depression, isolation, and wasted lives. Here's another highly decorated veteran, former Navy SEAL and Purple Heart and Bronze Star winner Eric Greitens, describing how toxic, well-intended efforts to help veterans have become. And we've actually built a program in the country and, and a mindset that actually encourages veterans to think of themselves not just as initially disabled, but as permanently disabled. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to think to yourself, all right, you're a 23-year-old Marine, you're serving in Afghanistan, right? And then maybe you come back and maybe you're, you're shot or you're hit by an improvised explosive device. You come back and you spent your whole life taking on challenges. And then you have a system, again, some wonderful doctors and nurses in the VA, but you have a disability system which also comes to people and say, listen, you're disabled and you're going to be so for the rest of your life. Fortunately, philanthropists are now funding a major experiment to demonstrate that there is a better way. Close to $14 million has been donated for a program run by the nonprofit Hire Heroes USA. What's called the Independence Project will help injured veterans heal and overcome disabilities so they can go to work and enjoy the satisfactions of being successful, self-supporting citizens. A variety of different techniques for helping vets enter the labor force are being tested, and a high-powered assessment done by professors at the Harvard Business School and the Baylor School of Medicine will determine what works. Then another group of philanthropists will go to work to convince charities and the federal government to stop subsidizing veterans in ways that turn them into wards of the state, and instead help them stand on their own and contribute to civilian life as they have contributed so powerfully to keeping America safe and free. And that's a great report from Carl, and I think it's something we actually want to follow up on. It's uh, it's out of control, and it's affected my family personally. We have one member of our family who's just racked by this, uh, getting just enough money to never move off the couch, uh, deeply depressed on medications of all varieties, and we deeply believe that it was just a setup. And we've tried to push him in another direction, and he resists. And it's just, it's tragic. And I can't tell you the number of peers and friends he has who are in the exact same position. Great work, as always, by Carl Zinsmeister. And the Almanac of American Philanthropy is a seminal work, and the Philanthropy Roundtable produces it. And again, this segment, Sweet Charity, is brought to us from Carl Zinsmeister. And this one isn't so sweet. This is a tough one, uh, because sometimes, as we learn from Charity Detox, a terrific book, uh, our charity can make things worse. And we, By the way, we know this as parents. Um, we know that we help our kids too often and too frequently. We can create dependency, and in the end, we can create all kinds of entitlement problems. And in the end, happiness problems. Because dependent people who aren't necessarily forced to be dependent, and I look, there, is, there are cases where there's no choice. But I think they're few and far between. Few and far between. And getting people to become productive members of our society and getting them to work is just critical. And again, thank you, Carl Zinsmeister, for the work you do, and thanks to the folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable uh, for supporting this. And again, the Philanthropy Roundtable is the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity. 
protecting philanthropic freedom and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And this is a tough one because we love our men and women in uniform, but we want to, at the very least, not enable them to lead lives of uselessness when, my goodness, they have their whole lives ahead of them to do tremendously useful things for their country. Heck, they serve their country in dangerous circumstances. My goodness, the things they have to contribute, we don't even know. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and we love to dig into new beginnings. And this segment is beginning again, and it's a segment hosted by writer Beverly Willette. Her story in the Washington Post: I divorced my husband, but I still have an affinity for his Jewish traditions. Really caught our attention, and so we decided to ask Bev to Beverly to drill down deep on this. And we want your beginning again stories. Give us a call at 844-627-8255. And we'd love to hear from you. And beginning again is hosted by Beverly Willett, again, a former New York City attorney who's now an accomplished writer. And she's brought us a story of a young lady named Amanda who was raped as a girl, later landed in prison, and how she's begun her life all again and all over again. And the story of a lawyer, Thomas Cliff, who was laid off when he was 64 years old and began again as a clinical social worker. You can listen to all of these in the Beginning Again topic section at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish holiday celebrating the anniversary of God's creation with Adam and Eve and the beginning of the Jewish New Year, Beverly brings us a personal story about her faith, her experience with Judaism, and beginning again in it after a devastating moment in her life. It's a piece she wrote in the Washington Post, and perform for us here. I'm half Christian and half Jewish. I'd laugh when I overheard my children describing their heritage that way to their elementary school friends. I was raised Baptist in a fairly homogeneous community where interfaith marriages were rare and generally frowned upon. After I grew up, I rebelled and married a Jewish man, albeit a non-practicing one who shunned organized religion. My parents were silent. Your father and I didn't want to lose you, my mother told me 20 years later, after my husband and I split. She and my father thought that if they objected, I might cut them out of my life altogether. They knew I was wildly in love and wouldn't have listened to them anyway. She was right. My husband and I waited several years to have children and I ultimately converted to Episcopalianism and Buddhism several years before our divorce. I took the children to church regularly, but only after my youngest insisted on going to this Sunday school she'd heard about from her friend Danielle. Before that, we'd always celebrated Christmas and Easter and Hanukkah. 
and during Hanukkah my children clamored to hold the Shamas and repeated the Hebrew blessings over the lights in unison with their father. I learned the blessings too. Periodically we attended Passover seders as well as other Jewish celebrations. And Yiddish phrases became part of our everyday household lingo. Mensch, Bubala, Shiksa, that was me, and more. When my husband and I were in the midst of splitting, the four of us went to a funeral for my husband's uncle and stood graveside, watching as men took turns spooning earth into the ground with the reverse side of a shovel. Suddenly my seven-year-old let go of my husband's hand, ran up to the rabbi and took hold of the large spade, and then placed three measures of earth into the ground, all by herself. Korovah, as it's called, is considered a special form of mitzvah or good deed because such great kindness can never be repaid. My husband and I stood there and cried. I recollect the ease with which my children first announced their dichotomous identities. Occasionally I'd hear one of their friends reply, me too, and watch the children seamlessly continue playing. By the time my youngest entered kindergarten, about half the children in her class were from Jewish Christian families. And that spring, my daughter's teacher asked for a parent to prepare a Seder plate and explain it to the children during Passover. I wasn't Jewish, so I said nothing. But when no one else volunteered, the teacher cornered me in the school hallway one morning. You'll do fine, she said, joking that I was a lawyer for goodness sakes. From the various Seders I'd gone to, I remembered the part about the bitter herbs, the moror that signified the slavery of the Israelites as well as the term Horoset, for the sweet mixture of apples and nuts and cinnamon and red wine, representing the mortar with which the pyramids were built. I'd heard the story of Moses and Pharaoh many times in my own Sunday school classes as a child. And my husband often bragged that I could pronounce the first of the four questions on Passover better than anyone he knew. Still, I was hardly an expert. What if I made a mistake? I'd been asked to instruct more than two dozen children on a culture other than my own. So I took the task seriously, and I was nervous. Over the next week, I spent many hours on the internet and at the Brooklyn Library across from my house, making index cards and practicing Hebrew. Even after my husband left, I continued to light candles and read from our favorite Hanukkah book called Melly's Menorah and host latka parties. As my daughters grew into their teens, our list of bar and bat mitzvah appearances far outstripped the number of baptisms and confirmations we attended. Gradually, however, the nods to the other half of my children's heritage grew more infrequent in our home. As my husband and his girlfriend celebrated the Jewish traditions and theirs, I was a single mom too and constantly in motion. There was only so much time with me working and doing the household chores my husband once attended to. Eventually, my daughters left for college. Still, it felt odd whenever the major Jewish holidays approached, and I was no longer even a small part of holiday celebrations. Perhaps that's why I felt particularly at home when my new friend Adele invited me for a Hanukkah dinner this past December. 
As she explained to guests unfamiliar with the holiday, the miracle of the oil that lasted for eight days, I was grateful for the comfort of this link with my past. Is it because my children are half Jewish that I have this lingering attraction to a legacy not my own? Is it due in part to the birthday I share with my ex's aunt who observes the Jewish holidays? and still treats me like close family after all these years. I've learned over the years that investigation of different faiths and customs not only complements, but enriches my own. Ultimately, however, it's thoughts of family that continue to draw me in. Right now, my daughters aren't religious, but who knows what the future may bring or who they might marry. I want to be the kind of mother and grandmother that will embrace all decisions lovingly. My divorce was unfortunately filled with bitter herbs. There were many times I thought my suffering would never end. Early on in my divorce, in a moment of frustration, I remember telling my lawyer's assistant that I wish I'd never gotten married. Don't ever say that again, she said reminding me that my children wouldn't have been born. It was some of the best advice I ever received. So when I saw the upcoming dates for Passover listed on my April calendar, I recalled that Maror and Haroset are eaten together, and that even in the midst of my marital difficulties, my children have always been there as symbols of the sweetness of life. And that's quite a story, Bev. And Beverly Willette uh, joins us now. And, you know, just one, we have about a minute and a half here, Beverly, but I just had to have you on. You know, when you have that end with a person, you, you still have traditions. And I think that's what you finally had to, to, to come to grips with. And you also had the past and the stories. I mean, that's true. You know, the reminders in the beginning are very, very painful, but it still is a part of my life. And my children are a part of my ex-husband, and they're a part of my life and always will be. Um, So when some of that pain passed, you know, I was finally able to embrace some of that that good stuff and that sweetness (laughs) uh, that was a part of our relationship and our family. Yeah, beginning again doesn't mean getting rid of everything in the past. I mean, that's just not possible. And frankly, it's just not human. I mean, you cannot get rid of everything, and I don't almost care how bad the past was. There are certain parts of it that have some sweetness, and there are some lingering good memories. Uh, your advice for folks trying to figure out how to navigate that? you got about a minute here, Bev. <laughs> well, I do think you have to take time. I mean, I think sometimes it does take time um, for, for that to happen, um, and, you, and you just have to realize that um, and let that time pass. Um, and just be open to things, I mean, and be open to how you start feeling. I mean, I started having these feelings, and I guess part of it, too, was my ex's aunt, who still kind of kept me um, as part of her family, and that was very comforting to me. That was wonderful. And then, you know, people come into your life, like my new friend Adele, all of a sudden. I mean, I think 
new opportunities come to you. It's funny because right after the Washington Post carried this story, it was right around Passover. And that night, <laughs> it was the very next year from the first time she invited me, I got a text message and she said, you know, I'm going to have Passover again. Will you come? And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's happening again. You know, I mean, it's like you don't believe that the blessings will come back. But, yep. they but they do. And and Beverly Willette, as always, thanks for doing what you do for us. The Beginning Again series here on Our American Stories. Go to our topic sessions and uh, on the OurAmericanNetwork.org website and pull down our Beginning Again stories. Again, all by Beverly Willette. This one appeared in the Washington Post. I divorced my husband, but I still have an affinity for his Jewish traditions. Thanks so much for joining us, Beverly. Thank you, Lee. You bet. listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan, whose life we're about to celebrate for the hour. And this is Our American Stories. And that's his band, Double Trouble and Rude Mood. And let's take a listen to Stevie doing what he's always done and always did better than anybody. Ray Vaughan was born on October 3rd, 1954, and tragically died in a plane crash on August 27, 1990. A cut, life cut short. A singer, a songwriter, and in spite of a short-lived mainstream career spanning seven years, widely considered one of the most influential electric guitarists in the history of music. Six Grammy Awards, ten Austin Music Awards. He was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 2000, the Musicians Hall of Fame in 2014, and in 2015, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he was voted by Rolling Stone as the 12th greatest guitarist of all time. Jesse and I disagree, by the way, and I think a lot of people did. I would put Stevie Ray in the top three or four. And I'm just wondering who, who chose some of those. And one day we'll, we'll go through those guitar lists again. We had a lot of fun doing it when uh, Rolling Stone came out with that list. But here's musician and blues guitarist John Mayer talking about his idol Stevie Ray Vaughan's brutal force and finesse as he approached playing that guitar. There's not a lot of people that you hear demos, you hear bootlegs, and you go, wow. This guy figured it out before he even walked out his house. And what that thing was, was half brutal force and half finesse. It's bend as hard and as fast as you can bend but hit the note like a paper airplane landing perfectly on the street, you know? I was listening to Poison and Motley Crue 
And then I heard Stevie Ray Vaughan, and there was a there was a big regime change in terms of posters in my bedroom wall. You know, if these weren't good tunes, they would just be excuses for guitar playing, and people would have eventually looked the other way, or he would have been a guitar playing phenomenon only within guitar players. Very few guitar players make it to the housewife contingency, and Stevie Ray Vaughan did, and and it's a testament to the triple threat of his voice, his guitar playing, and his tunes. You know? To play like Stevie Ray Vaughan. There are some people, and myself included, who, given a certain time of day, certain part of the set, certain culminating energy that happens in the room, you can play with that same intensity. But you can only do it for about 20 seconds, and then your entire arm cramps up. Time magazine is a periodical. National Geographic is a reference, and I think some music, most music, is a periodical. It's something that marks a certain time, a month, sometimes a week. And Stevie Ray Vaughan's music, like all the other great music, which is why it gets compared to Miles Davis, and I compare him to Miles Davis and Jimi Hendrix. There are references. It's almost not a cultural thing. It's just a natural thing. And I think that's what that's what Stevie Ray Vaughan's music is. I'll be 50 and and still be discovering something about it in the car. We are very proud tonight to introduce a fantastic guitar player from uh, Austin, Texas. So let's welcome with Chris Layton on drums. Chris Layton, Tommy Shannon on bass, Tommy Shannon, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Born and raised in Dallas, Texas, Vaughn began playing guitar at the age of seven, inspired by his older brother, Jimmy. Boy, I loved hearing those guys play together. Stevie Ray was born on October 3, 1954. And by the way, Jimmy, just three and a half years older. The family moved around a lot, living in states like Arkansas, Louisiana, our home state here in Mississippi, and Oklahoma, before ultimately settling in in Dallas. Shy and insecure, and by the way, we hear that so often about musicians and artists and actors. Shy and insecure, Vaughn was deeply affected by his childhood experiences. His father struggled with alcohol abuse and often terrorized his family and friends with his bad temper. In later years, Vaughn recalled that he had been a victim of his father's violence. In 1960, when Vaughn was just six years old, he began stealing his father's drinks. Drawn in by its effects, he started making his own drinks and this resulted in alcohol dependency. He explained, quote, That's when I first started stealing daddy's drinks. Or when my parents were gone, I'd find the bottle and make myself one. I thought it was cool. Thought the kids down the street would think it was cool. In 1971, he dropped out of high school and moved to Austin. And what a music town it is. The following year. In 1981, Stevie started a new band called Double Trouble. A few months later, a mutual friend showed rock star Mick Jagger a videotape of the band, and soon Double Trouble was invited to New York to play for the Rolling Stones at a private party. Let me tell you, that means you're good. It was this very invitation that would lead SRV down the path to success. 
The 35-minute party set stretched to three hours, but the band didn't get the recording contract they wanted. Several weeks later, however, record producer Jerry Wexler heard Double Trouble play. And by the way, Jerry Wexler is that man you heard so much about when we were talking about Muscle Shoals and the career of Aretha Franklin. This guy knew talent. And by the way, you're listening to a Montreux Jazz Festival performance by Stevie Ray. And anyway, Jerry Wexler really influenced this young talent. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Stevie Ray Vaughan himself about his life and, of course, much more music from he and his band, Double Trouble. When we come back, Stevie Ray Vaughan, a celebration for the hour. And you're listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan. And that's just the blues. We could just play that and shut up. And we're going to play a lot more, we promise. And we were talking about that Montreux Jazz Festival appearance. Jerry Wexler had persuaded the musical director of that prestigious festival to hire Stevie Ray Vaughan. No one without an album had ever performed at that Swiss festival before. But the band's appearance caught the attention of stars such as David Bowie, Jackson Brown, and the legendary record producer John Hammond. And John Hammond knows a little bit about talent, having signed the likes of Billie Holiday, Bob Dylan, and Bruce Springsteen. That's a lifetime right there. The late Mr. Hammond became a fan of Stevie's, helping him find a record label and producing his first album, Double Trouble's Texas Flood, which you're listening to right now, which charted at number 38. The 10-song album was a commercially successful release, it sold over a half a million copies. Let's take a listen to a little bit more of Stevie Ray Vaughan.
Vaughn's guitar tone was like no other. As dry as a San Antonio summer, as sparkling clean as a Dallas debutante. The product of the natural sound of amps and ample clean headroom. However, Vaughn occasionally used pedals to augment his sound, mainly to boost the signal, although he occasionally employed a rotating speaker cabinet and wah pedals for added textual flair. In these hard-to-find recordings from a previously lost Guitar World interview from 1989, Stevie gives a rare, candid interview, Stratocaster in hand, about his love for guitars, how he likes to play, and how he gets that sound. Here, Stevie talks about his favorite time of the day to play and why he likes to do it while watching TV with the sound turned off. My favorite time to practice, though, is sitting and watching TV. Uh Uh-huh. Or, like, watching uh, uh, Australian football with the sound off. Because, you know, like, there'll be... They don't show the ball. They show the people waiting on it. It's really? not like American football. You don't see the ball going through the air and then where it's going. You see you see somebody kick the ball, and then they show the guys at the other end of the field stand there, and they're like in a big clump. <laughs> they're looking up. You know, It's a great time to go. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Waiting for the thing and they to drop land. it. You know, right. Until they pick it up, and then it's... Somebody's gonna drop it sooner or later, you know. Right. Something's gonna happen. Right. So, you, did you know when you were young that you were actually gonna be playing soundtracks to Australian football when you got <laughs> <No>. older? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. Vaughn says it was his older brother Jimmy who introduced him to the world of music when he would bring records home from the store. I guess the first people that made me go crazy all it was kind of a wrap up of deal of okay of Lonnie Mac of uh, Albert King. It's kind of it's a real weird mixture because. It was everything from my generation to to Muddy Waters right. at the same time, right. you know. Because Jimmy was, I mean, it kind of goes back to Jimmy, my brother Jimmy. Right. He was bringing home all these records, all these different records. And and it might have been because I was a little kid, <laughs> but it seemed like in those, it seemed like all at the same time he brought home the Eric Clapton, the Bruce Breakers, Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, and, and the Beatles, and... You know, it was like one big. It was moment. like it was like here comes Jimmy with the record world, you know? <laughs> right? With the history of recorded music, yeah. And uh, and knew what he was doing. He sure did. And what changed everything is Jimmy bringing home a recording from a guitarist that would change Stevie Ray's life, Jimi Hendrix. Somewhere real soon down the line, Jimmy brings home this Jimi Hendrix record, and we both went. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> what's this? <laughs> you know, was that all you experienced? Was it like when it was it? It was. I'll just never forget that. All at the same time, there was all this influence, and Jimmy was like, God. I mean, by, I mean, look. By the time I was twelve, Jimmy was gone, and I mean, here he was. He was like about the hottest guitar player I knew of, and the hottest guitar player in Texas that lots of people had heard of. Mm-hmm. And he was fifteen. And I think he started playing when he was 12. Right. You know? <laughs> I mean, if you want to know what made me go crazy with it, watching that and then it's not trying to outdo Jimmy, but, but go, what do you do but pick it up, pick up the ball and run, you know? Right, right. And it's not, it's not trying to pass him. It's not trying to keep up with him. It's more like 
wow. <laughs> look what Big Brother stumbled onto. Yep, look what he stumbled onto. Here's Stevie describing his playing style. He's then asked about his hit song, Tightrope, before he busts into the opening licks of that song. A lot of it's what I play is what ended up being automatic stuff. Like over the years, it just kind of faded into doing that. Like I, don't, I hardly know how to go without going, you know. Right. stuff i don't know how to it's like i don't know how to stop without going blah, 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 blah. right <laughs> you know it's like stop the train <laughs> you know it's like tightrope we couldn't figure out what cube play that song in first either <laughs> what did it end up in it's in b right <laughs> yeah. yeah talks about how he recorded that song tightrope in the recording studio it's funny because we just we got an idea what we wanted to do or we got we got an idea how we wanted it to go and then uh i just played that was one of the songs that i just played rhythm on when we first cut it i played the solo Uh later what i did was uh okay i didn't like the tone i had on the on the the rhythm track so much and i didn't play a solo just because i was decided i was going to groove right (laughs) it wasn't intentional and then uh I went back and just played the whole song again, uh-huh. with uh, with the old track a little bit in one of one side of the headphones, and played a solo where I was supposed to have in the first time. Right. And we used both of them. Sure. <laughs> we might overdub and stuff, but we just do it like, okay, <laughs> roll the tape. Well, let's roll the tape. Let's take a listen to Tightrope as we go out to this break. The life of Stevie Ray Vaughan for the hour. More from him about his music. And of course, more of his music here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories for the hour. Stevie Ray Vaughan, his life, his music, and we're going to have him talk to you about his own guitar playing. Here he is talking about how he doesn't normally have a rhythm guitar underneath his lead solos, and how sometimes even some of his favorite guitar licks hit the cutting room floor. Do you have rhythm guitar behind most of your solos on the record or no? You don't? No. I'll scratch and sniff. Mm-hmm. That's the only ones. What I ended up playing for the solo was this, was this based off of this side. Okay, that was really... Do that slower because I'm going to put it based off of anyway and that was the way this song was it was either going to be scratch and sniff or house is rocking was going to start right okay which tune do you end up using that on well i use the um on scratch and sniff i used i used parts of it okay there was these two songs i was wanting to use and then go to the thought it would fit in with a rock and roll song you know <laughs> right you know and it just ended up where i never we never could decide which one to put it in <laughs> so it didn't make it on either one <laughs> so when we were doing, I was doing this solo for scratch and sniff i tried to play this other stuff and i hated it hated what I was playing right and I went hmm let me go try this one more time yeah. so I just turned on all the gadgets I could find <laughs> including a wah-wah yeah you know that's so when the solo starts with the wah-wah yeah. right yeah and started playing that you know and so there you have it Vaughn talking about what he did in the studio and how he did it Vaughn is asked in this same interview about the blues and what made him like it so much it's a great answer what is it about the blues? I mean, you didn't like stop playing blues at one point. You go, oh, well, I'm going to play, uh, you know, I'm going to learn how to play heavy metal. Or, I mean, you play blues because you love the blues. And what is it about the blues to you that makes it just feel so good to play and get better or whatever? It just sounded more like the real thing than something else did. It's not like I automatically went, well, uh, this is cooler than this. Right. You know, or uh, this is more emotion. You know? <laughs> When I heard it, it just killed me, mm-hmm. you know, it slayed me. Right. There was just not a question. Hearing it different ways, you know, like from all these different ways I've been talking about, English blues boom to, to like authorized recordings and, you know, bootleg stuff, you know, of everybody you can dream of. Just listening and listening and listening, and the more I heard, the better I liked what I heard. And how has the blues changed for you? Uh... Well, uh, in the fairly recent years, in some ways I felt like I've gotten more in touch with it but it's usually when I go and see somebody when I go when I go see somebody that's that's just used to playing a small club it's not used to being riding around in a fancy tour bus and mm-hmm. playing in arenas there's a difference there on one side of the coin it may look like okay well the guy sounds that way so we can't sell him on the other side of the coin is uh I've been sold so I can't sound like that <laughs> you know 
And uh, every time I get to hear somebody sound real, once again I get the chance to come home. It makes me want to play that way right. even that much more and find a way where I can play that way and still snicker when somebody says, record sold. (laughs) (laughs) And there's Stevie grappling with that fame thing and always wanting to keep his authenticity, worried about that big road show that goes to the next big road show and forgetting why he ever picked up an axe to begin with. Vaughn was inspired musically by American and British blues rock. Here he talks about the difference between the British and American styles of playing. As I was hearing the original blues masters from the States, um, I was also hearing the English blues boom at the same time. So not only was I getting the original, but I was getting this um, updated, energized version of the same thing. So I had less reservations and less reasons to be so-called a purist. And therefore, I wasn't as restricted about what I could learn. Show me how you combine the two. For instance, okay, Freddie King does Hideaway Like. does it like this. Yeah, there's, there's a small difference there. And then it got down to the drugs. The guy had mastered his, his art, had taken it in places that very few had ever taken it. Stevie talks here about the time in his life when he realized that he had a problem with drugs and with alcohol. It was over a period of about 25 years that uh, in one form or another I was you know, drinking or using something. And uh, it got to the point where finally... I knew for I knew for quite a while that I could, that I had a problem with things like that with, with drugs and alcohol, but it was also at the same it was it was I knew that I had a problem, but I couldn't stop, and I knew that I couldn't stop. Every time that I had more pressure seemed to be a good excuse for more, and every time there was less pressure, it was party time. Those, that's the disease telling you that you don't have it, you know. Oh, sure, you can, come on, you can make it, you know. And uh, what happened was I ended up finally, I I saw it coming too. I knew it was coming. Finally, I had every kind of breakdown at once that I think a person could have. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, and, and the whole ball of wax melted. Vaughn describes the moment he woke up paralyzed by fear. I woke up on a bus, uh, crying, scared of everything, didn't know why. Didn't know what I was scared of, much less how to deal with it. And that went on for quite some time until we were, it was just obvious that I could not keep going. And went and saw Dr. Victor Bloom in London. 
he put me in London Clinic, which is a private private hospital. I did detox there, and we also checked out my stomach because I was having some struggle problems, possible ulcers, and it was just come to find it was just there was. He said my stomach looked like a sixty-five-year-old man. And when we come back, Stevie Ray Vaughan finds sobriety, writes the greatest blues record I think ever written, recorded, and performed. And you'll hear a lot from that record here. Well, let's Stevie Ray's acts and his voice and his immense talent do the talking in the last segment. The life of Stevie Ray Vaughan, celebrated here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan celebrated. And we're talking about Stevie Ray's bout with alcoholism and drug addiction and his path to sobriety. He tells us where he went next and how he was shown the way to sobriety. After I left that hospital, I was in London for three or four days, I guess, and came back to to the States, went and checked in immediately to a uh, Charter Peachford Hospital in Atlanta. I was there for about a month. And what that place did not only is a, is a good place to be away from the uh, away from drugs. You know, you do clean out that way. But it not only taught us, it not only got got us dried out all of the people that were in there and that have gone through them before, but it gives you, it teaches you a set of tools. Um, well, if you just dry up, you might as well just, you know, all you're doing then is white knuckling it and just, you know, on your own willpower, it's not going to work. You know, willpower has nothing to do with this. A lot of people think, why do I need to stop? It's not that easy. There is a, it's actually a disease. Alcoholism and addiction is a disease. And it, it's, it's a disease that tells, it's the only disease that I know of that, Part of it is that the disease actually tells you you don't have it. It's okay to it's okay to have one, and one is the one that gets you messed up. All the rest of them don't matter. And they don't. And here's Stevie Ray talking about his newfound sobriety, and he was asked if he performs better when sober. Uh, nowadays, I'm 
I'm drug free, alcohol free. For a long time, no, I wasn't. About 25 years. And just trying to work through some of those problems and, and grow from them, grow from those mistakes. The, the, this business, the scheduling of it, can call for, can call for needed, some people to see, at least think that they need artificial energy or not thinking about something to sedate themselves. Uh, a lot of that, a lot of that comes with the image of rock and roll and and playing music. Um, regardless of all that, it still ends up where it's not necessary. It really isn't. Do you feel as though your music is better now than it was when you were under the influence? Yeah, there was, you know, of course, of course, for a long time I thought that was the solution. You know, <laughs> I found that it was a problem. <laughs> you know. Uh, I, th I think we're, our music's a lot clearer now. really do. I feel a lot better inside, I know that. Double Trouble bassist Tommy Shannon remembers when he and Stevie Ray prayed together in a hotel room to overcome both of their addictions. I remember one night, I'll never forget this. This was about six months before we finally hit bottom. That's what we call it in the program of recovery. Uh, we both got down on our knees in this hotel room. We were praying, you know, please, God, help us stop this, you know, because we, we knew we were in some deep trouble. We knew that, but we couldn't stop. And we said this real deep prayer. We got up, went over there, did some more cocaine, drank some more booze. But the thing is, the prayer was answered, you know. It came six months later. We both got clean and sober together, and it was like walking out of a cesspool out into the sunshine, you know, on a beautiful day. And out of that came Stevie Ray's greatest record, In Step. And again, I think many people consider it the finest blues rock record ever written. And then he embarked on a tour in which he opened for Joe Cocker. And I'll tell you a little bit about that tour later. But I saw him on July 7th, 1990. And he died just a month and a half later. And it really rocked everybody because to see a guy finally clean up after 25 years only to then have his life ended abruptly in a, in a helicopter crash. Well, the drummer for Double Trouble, Tommy Shaw, talks about the last words he had with Stevie Ray Vaughan before he died. The last night in Alpine Valley, the shows were over and everything was winding down. And he and I sat backstage for like a half an hour. It was a really nice time, too, because it was, everything was really, really relaxed. It wasn't hectic like, you know, things that surround shows of that magnitude can be. And um, we talked about families. We talked about the next record that we were looking to make in the future and talked about all kinds of things. It was real, a really nice talk. He said, I, I got to go. Um, I said, go, where are you going? He said, well, I'm... I'm going to go back to Chicago. I said, well, why? He said, well, I'm going to go back and call. This is the girlfriend. He's going to go call the girlfriend. I said, well, I said, I got phones here. He said, he said well, I got to go. I said, well, um, I'll see you back in Chicago. He said, all right. He goes, I love you. I said, I love you too. And he left and that was the last time I saw him. It was, that was always strange to me that he left.
And then came this news on August 27, 1990. Take a listen. This is MTV News. I'm John Norris. Guitar great Stevie Ray Vaughan was killed early Monday morning in a helicopter crash at Alpine Valley in East Troy, Wisconsin. Vaughn, who would have turned 36 on October 3rd, was leaving the venue after a Sunday night concert there in which he'd shared the bill with Eric Clapton and Robert Cray. Vaughn's helicopter apparently lost its bearings in heavy fog and crashed into a man-made ski hill. Also killed in that crash, along with Vaughn and the helicopter pilot, were Bobby Brooks, a respected booking agent with the Contemporary Artists Agency, and two members of Eric Clapton's road crew, bodyguard Nigel Brown and tour manager Colin Smythe. Here's John Meyer, Meyer, who we started with, describing Vaughn as a hero for saving himself from drug and alcohol. This inspired Meyer to live his life sober. One of the traits that define a hero is courage. And Stevie had incredible courage because he fought to overcome the demons of drug and alcohol addiction. And when he did, he returned to the stage an even better guitar player for it. The only reason that I know exactly what sobriety meant to Stevie in his heart and soul is because he had the courage to talk openly about it on stage. And so because of Stevie, I grew up proudly turning down every drug and drink ever offered to me because in my mind, that could bring me closer to being like the man I never met and never could. Stevie was the ultimate guitar hero and heroes live forever. On behalf of every guitar player and every blues lover, it is the honor of a lifetime to induct Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so we're going to play a little of that record. And, uh, well, here's how it all starts. And this is from In Step, the first cut on this great record. After this, the album storms right into Crossfire.
This is Our American Stories, the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan. I was lucky enough to catch him in a concert at the Garden State Arts Center, opening for Joe Cocker on July 7th, 1990. And for me, the the show highlight was him slowing things down, talking a bit about his love of jazz and peace and quiet. And we're going to leave with Riviera Paradise. Again, the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan, celebrated here on Our American Stories. (laughs) 